pretty extensive automotive service and repair background. Um, working at a family shop and a large Honda dealer that were both um, in my career, fortunate enough to be AAA approved or AAR facilities to help you fix your car. Uh, and then I took the plunge and came here to AAA and I've been working here since about 2010. And, um, you know, one, one of the things you mentioned, the approved auto repair problem uh, uh, program. And, you know, for people that are looking for a good repair shop, they can go to AAA.com slash repair and find a AAA approved repair shop. And what's nice about the AAA approved repair shops, you know, we always say the best way to find a good repair shop is to, um, is to, you know, ask friends, you know, would you recommend them, all that kind of stuff. Well, we do all the work for you. So you can, so you don't have to, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do all the checkups. And we have reps that go in on a regular basis not as much now, obviously, with COVID, because we're trying to keep our employees and our contractors safe. But uh, we also look at their satisfaction scores. So just like you would say to somebody, "Hey, where should I go to, you know, get my car repaired?" or you know, "Where, sh you know, do you know a good electrician?" and kind of word of mouth, we kind of do that for everybody. So it makes it a little bit easier. And like you said, you worked for a family repair shop that was that is AAA approved as well as a, a large dealership that was that is AAA approved as well and so you have you have a good feeling about that but you're as a technical trainer um, tell us kind of what that is what is it, what does that mean so a technical trainer here at AAA is someone who has a vast amount of service experience fixing cars but also providing road service to members like doing jump starts uh, installing spare tires, doing lockouts if you lock your keys in your car or in your trunk, uh, providing tows if your car breaks down and needs to be towed or flatbedded to a service facility. Um, so a trainer is someone who's got experience in all those areas of service um, and then takes that and translates it to our uh, prescribed courses uh, for our new hire technicians, anyone who comes on board with AAA working at the fleet or our subcontracted facilities to make sure that everyone's got the basic skills and prepare all the folks out there doing the road service um, with the same knowledge and the same ability to use service information and precautions uh, to provide uh, world-class and damage-free uh, and professional service out there. So we'll teach everything from how to do a basic jump start to a little bit about automotive electricity and some basic um, functionality and theory and operation of the car systems uh, that people are gonna encounter to safety precautions around physical safety, general roadside safety, what to do when we're out broken down on the side of the road to keep the technician safe uh, from traffic, but also to keep you the member safe uh, while we're out there servicing your car. Uh, we'll teach people how to use towing equipment. We'll teach people how to test and install if necessary, AAA branded batteries, uh, which we can come to you and, and deliver and install on the spot. Um, there's a myriad of different functions uh, that a technical trainer here at the club provides. And um, I work with a team of uh, 10 other folks in five different states spanning our footprint, Mass, Rhode Island, Connecticut, um, New York metropolitan area, Long Island, and New Jersey northern sections. And so, you know, you mentioned the battery program. One of, one of the things that we always, you know, as you know, we always think about wintertime and we always think about batteries and a lot of people are under the misconception that batteries will um, batteries always fail in the wintertime, but it's actually the the summer heat that causes a battery problem, right? 
Yeah, there's there's uh, batteries are a mysterious little object sometimes, and, and there are some misconceptions around that. And yeah, uh, summertime and heat is actually what can help uh, deteriorate a battery um, rapidly and cause it to fail. Uh, what we tend to experience in the cold, you're right, John, is that we find the problem with the battery not able to deliver the power to start the car in the extreme cold weather because of cold circumstances. But the cold isn't actually what killed the battery. Uh, probably just general life uh, and cycling through the hotter summer months, particularly in our area where we go from zero degrees in the coldest part of the winter to 100 degrees in the hottest part of the summer. Um, all those things factor in on the battery, but it's definitely the heat and cycling um, that tend to wear in on the battery and then cause it to fail in these months we're coming up on right now. Yeah, no, it, it really it really sort of is interesting on how how that works and and the way it works. Um, because it's, and I was having a little technical difficulty, sorry if I got distracted, but yeah, the, uh, the chemical composition of what goes on in, in batteries can, can cause some odd, odd things to happen. And you're right, you, you go out on a hot summer day, your car started perfectly that morning, you went out to the, you know, you went out to the mall, you spent a couple hours, your car was uh, sitting in the parking lot, you go out and you go to turn the key and you swear somebody stole the battery because you got nothing at all. And you're like, how did that happen? It started perfectly. Yep. And yeah, that's when we see the, the warm weather issues, but we also see the same sort of relative cold issues that as the temperature drops and we all know that our battery, any kind of battery doesn't perform as well when the temperature changes. You know, you take your cell phone and you walk outside with it and you're outside all day and normally that phone battery might last you the day. Well, out in that cold weather, it doesn't last as long. And the battery in your car is not a whole lot different. Yeah, no, the, uh, the temperature relationship to battery performance is, is pretty consistent. And, and I think a lot of people in the industry would agree that, that most batteries in cars have that sweet spot where the easiest way for them, the easiest time for them to perform is in that probably 55 to 70 degree Fahrenheit kind of range where that's their maximum performance ranges. But then as it gets colder outside, uh, the chemical reactions slow inside the batteries um, due to temperature and relationships. And then that makes it when it's 20 degrees or 10 degrees or unfortunately, his open, we don't have zero degrees. Um, but when we get down to those cold temperatures, the chemical reaction in there is even less capable and less intense. And that's when the battery can kind of show that, oops, I don't have what it takes right now to help you start your car. Yeah, ab absolutely. And it's... Um when we look at when we look at that and you said you know hopefully we won't have zero but you know every year we kind of we kind of look at that and depending where you live i mean i was talking to one of our co-workers up in utica and she said oh it wasn't a bad weekend we only got six or seven inches of snow and we depending where you live you get a little bit spoiled about what the temperature changes are and i was talking to somebody just over the weekend who lives way up in northern maine and they said, oh, yeah, it wasn't unusual, you know, minus 20 degrees for a good stretch in a row. So, you know, it, depending on where you live, those temperatures can make a real difference. And, um, you know, with these COVID times, people are not driving their cars as much as they were. Um, I have two cars that are not going too far. I know you have a couple of uh, classic cars. Uh, I have battery tenders on both of them. Um, have Do you find that in your battery testing, keeping the battery charged um, is really what helps, uh, or keeping the battery maintained and fully charged is what helps uh, extend the life of the battery? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's a few different factors that we could talk about. Um, one is that, as you mentioned, with COVID and what's going on now and the, and the lack of uh, travel and the lack of places to go or the lack of um, general use that people were getting pre-March of this year, um, cars are not getting used all that much um, as compared to before. And what happens there is that battery um, starts to discharge because of your car's onboard computers. And if you're not running your car, um, there's no specific formula for this, but the general rule of thumb, I think, in the industry is if you're not starting and running your car for a while, uh, at least once a week, um, you're, not, you're not keeping that battery as maintained as it needs to be for maximum life. Um, it will last because it has a kind of a baked in shelf life to it by just sitting, but you'll prolong its life by running it and keeping it charged because your car's engine and alternator and, ch and charging system help rejuvenate that battery. Um, so the more often you go out there and just start your car and let it run for maybe 20 minutes or a half an hour periodically once a week will help keep that level of charge. It's like keeping your cell phone plugged in uh, and, and kept up at 100% or letting it sit on the shelf and go to zero um, for a really long time, weeks in between. Um, and and that's, that helps keep people from needing to call us, quite frankly, which doesn't mean that we don't want to come out and see you, but it will help kind of keep the convenience in your life. Um, if you don't have your battery go dead and require a jump start and get one of our free battery tests, um, but it, it's definitely the optimal set of circumstances. If it, if it doesn't work out that way and you need us, we'll come out. Um, but even in the testing of batteries, um, the ones that tend to last the longest are the ones that are maintained. Like you said, battery tenders. Um, that's yeah. a, you know, that's a, a, a branded product from, from a company that AAA um, has AAA units branded for as well. Um, but they're out there. They're, they're an automated battery maintainer and they're great. I have Actually, I have five of them in my garage. Um, I have two classic cars, a motorcycle, a generator with a battery on it, and a lawn tractor. And so I have all of them plugged in when they're not being used um, so that I keep them up because I would have to buy a lot of batteries if I didn't take good care of my batteries and keep them charged. Yeah, absolutely. And I found I had a car that was, um, it's a 2015 car. It was manufactured in 2014. So the battery's at least six years old. Mm -hmm. um, it sat from June till a week ago or two weeks ago, um, I put a battery tender on it. Uh, when I got to the car two weeks ago, I uncovered the car, disconnected the battery tender, turned the key, it fired right up. Um, I took that battery over to, I, the car was six years old in the, and tires, which we'll talk about in a bit. Um, the tires on the car, because they're six years old, started to uh, show some signs of wear, not tread wear, but actually sidewalls were starting to dry rot a little bit, yep. age cracks, just from typical age. And while I was at the tire store, I asked them to test the battery. Uh, the battery in the car is about a 500 cold cranking amp rated battery from Volkswagen. It tested out at 620. Um, the guy who tested it was pretty amazed that this original battery tested out so good. And he said, I'd love to sell you a battery, but I can't see any reason to because it tests out better than it, than it should. And uh, I said to him, the only thing I can imagine is it, when the car doesn't get used, it sits on a battery tender and keeps the battery maintained. Yep, absolutely. And that's, I, I have a couple of examples of that same similar stories. I have one of my cars that actually I got about eight and a half years out of one battery because um, it lived its entire life on that battery tender for that eight and a half years since the day it was put in. Um, I also have the battery. My motorcycle lasted nine years. Um, same thing. I keep things for a long time. I tend to do that. 
so I actually have two of those examples. What's interesting though, is if you're not keeping that battery on a tender, um, that, that same six year old Volkswagen 500 CCA battery, um, for those people uh, interested, CCA means cold cranking amps. It's just a rating we talk about uh, the strength of batteries. Um, that battery at six years old without um, being used uh, is, is definitely on the outside of its average expected life and, and more likely to be replaced if it's not kept up. Um, we typically know that I think batteries in New England tend to last three to five years on average from all the uh, battery supplier information and tester supplier information that we get. Um, but that battery, because it was on a tender, it's, it, it's still, got, still going strong and has some life left in it. Whereas a battery not maintained like that at six years old is probably looking at um, certainly to be tested preventatively. And as that guy said at the, at the shop, would have probably expected to tell you, to tell you it's time for a battery um, at about six years old, because that's definitely the outside of the longest average lifespan of batteries. Yeah, no, it really is. And, and I had a, a previous car that I would test the battery periodically, and um, I didn't have the fancy battery tester that we have at AAA. I had a kind of Medtronics type unit. It plugged into a scan tool and magically did battery testing. And it was, uh, I always tested it and the battery was good and, it, and the car was seven years old and the battery still tested perfectly until the one day I didn't close the hatch fully. The car sat for the weekend with the dome lights on, um, went to turn the key, didn't start up, uh, charged the battery, it probably went from a 600 CCA battery that a month previous to a 290 CCA battery, even though it was fully charged, um, it just never came, it never came back to life. And that's pretty typical of when a battery, when you do allow a battery to go dead, it's never gonna come back 100%. No, and we, we could probably get way too in the weeds about Things we call sulfation and plate shedding and, and technical um, kind of geek stuff. Uh, but that's just a fact that the, the way batteries are built, what they're made out of, and just the natural occurrences of time um, make it so that when that final last um, straw um, is placed on the back of the battery, it, it, it kind of weakens it to a point where it can't recover from it. Because uh, every time you discharge that battery, you, you take just a little bit of available plate material and and remove it from the equation it's no longer able to be exactly what it was built as yeah absolutely we i finally found the comments on our page here so i apologize to the people let's see we got one comment that says hi i'm a former dispatcher for AAA as well as a former tow driver for a facility uh great training in both roles over the years uh thank you to AAA and thank you to who that was uh tom says to me hi john and guests uh, guest is Jay, by the way. I, he says, uh, didn't I recall you saying that 80% or more of AAA service calls are batteries and flat tires? Is this still the case? Um, I, believe I, think it's, we, I don't believe it's 80%. Yeah. But I think when you take toes out of the picture, people will call up and say, I need my car's car towed. The next three are sort of dead batteries, flat tires, and, and uh, keys locked in the cars, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I want to say that number is probably somewhere around 60% or maybe even 65. It's in that general ballpark. Yeah, it changes with the seasons, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, absolutely, you know, that nice fall weather when it's 50 degrees out, and your car is performing well, and you're 
your battery's performing well. It's it all seems it all seems good, but yeah, it will it will change a little bit. So thanks to Tom for that question. Uh, our own Diana said hello, and uh, hi Diana. And um, also, you know, I mentioned tires. The tires on my car were just starting to get old. Um, the um, Tires, and I just answered a question for somebody. Somebody had a pretty simple question. They wrote into me and said, snow tires, yes or no? <laughs> and, uh, and, and the question is, depends. Uh, my opinion has always been, if you need to be out before the snowplow drivers, there is nothing better than a good winter tire on a car. And the other part, the other magic about winter tires is that the rubber compounds are softer. And even though there's no snow on the road, um, your tires are going to be stickier in cold weather than conventional tires. Um, and so tire maintenance is important. And if we're going out for a lot of our road service calls for flat tires or blown tires or low tires, maintaining your tires is really important. And at least getting out there and checking tire pressure once a month, uh, use a tire gauge. Uh, a lot of cars have tire pressure monitor systems. When the weather gets really cold, they don't really work. Um, and checking the tire pressure once a month. We always say, we always say check tire tread. And in most states, except for a couple, uh, tires are considered worn out when they're down to two thirty seconds of tread. Um, I did a radio interview yesterday, and I said to the host, you know, what we say now is take a quarter, take the quarter, stick it in the tread across the tire. Um, that's 430 seconds. If the tread isn't at least there, it's time for new tires. And he said to me, yeah, we used to say a quarter, we used to say a penny, then we said a nickel, now we say a quarter. What's the reason behind that? And I said, well, if I told you inflation, you'd probably never let me on the program anymore. And, uh, but really what we found out was we did a lot of testing uh, through our AAA national office that shows that um, that you should, when tires get, the tread gets worn down to below 40, 430 seconds on a wet day, stopping distances can change from say 130 or 150 feet to 250 feet because of worn tread. Um, so people need to maintain their tires, but we were talking before we started today about spare tires and people sort of forget about those and they forget about the ones if they drive a sedan or an SUV where it's in the car, but even worse, the ones that are under the car. Now, you know, you and your team still go out and do road service calls to kind of stay on top of it all. But, uh, what could you recommend? people to do about those spare tires that are mounted underneath their vehicle. So yeah, that's, it's, it's actually a, a really um, a poignant issue for, for road service and helping members out when we get there to, to try and fix a flat tire. Uh, it, it's really over the years become more and more obvious as more people uh, tend to drive SUVs, uh, particularly because most of them are built in all wheel drive or four wheel drive configuration. So they become very popular um, that the, the ability to put your spare tire on doesn't just rest on just what the condition the tire is in, the rubber tire that we've just been speaking about. Um, one of the most important things is when your car's tire is spared, stored outside the vehicle, it's typically underneath. Um, and unfortunately, in, in our area, we get a lot of road salt on the road, and that road salt gets thrown about all under the car, and it's what cause, causes rust and corrosion and rot, ultimately, on older cars. 
Um, it does the same thing for that steel spare tire rim um, that's mounted under the car. And it, it's one of those things that's, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and people rarely remember to check it. And the next thing you know, you're driving a six or a seven year old car um, and you've never had the spare tire down because fortunately you've never needed it. Um, and we can show up on scene and we'll look at that tire and find that the, the road salt over the years has corroded that rim so badly that the rim is actually weakened to a point where it's not safe for us to install. Um, and that ends up having us uh, to require either picking you up with the tow equipment if we came in tow vehicle or sending another service truck that's tow capable because we can't install that for you. Um, and it's something that many people are surprised by uh, because they hadn't thought of it. And then we take the tire down and we say, sorry, but this, this tire is just structurally deficient. The lot yeah. um, has become too risky and we can't clean it up well enough that it'll be thick enough to secure and properly torque it to your hub and, and have you drive safe down the road amongst all the other motorists on the road till you get to your destination to have that tire fixed. So one thing I would recommend is when you, when you take your car into whatever your service facility is, it takes care of it for its periodic, um, you know, we call it an oil change, but it's a, it's a periodic look over and, and maintenance interval. Um, consider asking your service advisor or your mechanic or whoever you speak to, hey, uh, can, can you check to make sure that my tire, my spare tire, if it's underneath, looks okay, the rim's not too rotted, and that it also comes down that you can get it down a lot of these understored um spare wheels they're stored on what's called a winch assembly which is a cable with a mechanism that lowers and raises the tire and the road salt will get in that over the years and bind it up and cause deterioration so that we can't get the tire down when we show up so having that checked maybe once a year um at one of your oil change intervals to make sure it all works and can be lubricated and put back up is is probably some good insurance so that if you need a spare tire uh, installed because you get a flat, we can actually get it and do the service. Yeah, ab absolutely. And for people, you know, if they if they think about going into, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a Walmart or something, they see the they see the little crane toy thing where you put the quarter in and you try to you try to win the iPhone with the little crane. And um, that same kind of cable mechanism is almost what holds your tire up and you're literally unwinding it and that mechanism yeah it gets all it, it either gets rusted or corroded or the last time somebody put it away they wound it up so tight that the cable is all twisted and it becomes a problem so like you said once a year if you're in for service now if you're changing your oil in your car a couple times a year or if you have a car like i do where it says change it once a year um yeah that once a year where they can drop the spare tire down, clean it, um, check to see how rusty that steel wheel is because it, it, it does tend to collect all the salt and sand under there. We got a um, question uh, from somebody, how often should, should you replace the battery in a car? And I think our testing has shown that the average life of a battery in the Northeast is somewhere just short of five years. Yep. Um, I've always told people, uh, test your battery when it gets to be three years old. And if you don't want to have problems, maybe replace it at five. Yep, absolutely. You can you can call us out and we'll come test your battery um, and your charging system uh, as part of your AAA membership. And and three to five years is the, the typical range that the battery manufacturers around uh, for this area will use. Uh, and what we're seeing a little bit now, John, is some evidence in our return piles um, and at the battery manufacturer level um, of it, it kind of trending a little bit more towards the four-year scope uh, because so many vehicles have 
um, start stop technology nowadays where your engine shuts off when you're at a traffic light or a stop sign. Um, and that battery is being asked to provide electricity to a lot more uh, items without a charging uh, voltage helping it out. And so it's starting to shorten and deteriorate the life a little bit. And there's some work at, at car brands and battery manufacturers to build pipes and stronger and different composition batteries to help offset that. But we are seeing a little bit in our area of a diminishment from that five year to maybe more closer to the four years um, for many batteries, just kind of weighing the average down a little bit now with new technology. And you, and you brought up a good point that when, it's not just when the car shuts off and restarts, it's not just that power that it needs to get the car going, but it's, well, it's sitting there off all of your accessories, including perhaps air conditioning. If it has uh, some, I, I just saw a car the other day with a beltless air conditioner system. It was a hundred percent electrically operated mm -hmm. air conditioning compressor. Well, that's going to be, that's going to certainly be part of the problem. Uh, someone else just wrote in and said, uh, does GM still have those horrible side mount terminals? They were such a pain to jumpstart when I was a kid. So uh, th there's plenty of older GM vehicles on the road with those horrible side mount terminals in them. Yes. Uh, to my knowledge right now, and I'm not um, necessarily speaking from a general motor service manual exactly, but around 2009 or 10, it seems to us uh, that we've, that GM sort of moved to the top mount configuration uh, pretty much platform wide in most of the passenger car and light duty uh, vehicles that are out there. There may be a couple of side mounts uh, still left, but I, I think for the most part by about eight, 2009 or 10, we're seeing a lot of top mount batteries, 48s and, and 34s and stuff rather than 75s and 78s. Yeah, no, it is, it is sort of interesting. And those batteries have been around for as long as I can remember. And uh, I still think I have my, uh, six point battery wrench somewhere around the house here. Yeah, I think it was, I think they said 1973 or 74. Yeah, yeah was right, configuration. Right, right around there. Yeah. So yeah, it is, it is sort of uh, one of those things that, that we run into when we, we think about that. And, um, you know, I mentioned, I have, I have a Volkswagen um, that according to Volkswagen yearly service once a year, every 10,000 miles, whichever comes first. Um, I'm still not convinced oil is designed to be in a car for 10,000 miles, but if that's what the manufacturer says, who am I to argue with it? But right. that doesn't mean that you can go once a year without ever opening the hood on the car. And I think that's one of the things from a maintenance standpoint that I'm sure that we, um, um, that we see that people are not maintaining their cars and we might get out and see a car that, you know, the hood was open 11 months ago. It has, you know, conceivably almost no oil in it. It doesn't want to start or overheated. And people forget that even a good running engine will use oil, will burn some oil during the combustion process. And oil contributes to, you know, 25 to 50% of the engine cooling capacity. So if you have an engine with no oil in it, and you're driving down the road and it starts to overheat the engine coolant might be fine but the oils the oils low so yeah this um so it's still important we want to still tell our folks you know go you know go periodically to your garage uh and build that relationship up with your garage that hey maybe i don't need an oil change but can you just get the car kind of a once over here before before winter time rolls around 
so so there's a couple of huge advantages in my opinion to that um having like I said spent my life fixing cars um one of the things that can make it a challenge to fix an automobile believe it or not is when you can't open the hood and when you can't open the hood because the hood latch like maybe that spare tire we were talking about a few minutes ago is rusted or stuck and it's rusted or stuck because the car sat for so long and nobody's opened the hood so it becomes a very uh elementary challenge to overcome to get in uh, when the hood doesn't work so the benefit of going and having your car checked more than once a year a couple few times a year is that you keep all those latches uh open and moving and functional you give the service technician the opportunity to lubricate them most manufacturers actually have you know an expectation that you lubricate items like hinges door hinges hood latches door latches periodically to keep them working um and, and so it gives you the opportunity to make sure all that stuff's going to work if you need to get under the hood like if we need to jump start you um but also when you lift the hood in many cases a lot of batteries aren't mounted under the hood anymore but most are um, it gives that technician the opportunity to look at the battery terminals. Um, and on most top mount traditional style batteries, if you start the opportunity to clean those battery terminals might be, in my opinion, the best small dollar purchase you can make at your service facility is when a service advisor or your mechanic says to you, your battery terminals haven't been cleaned in a while. They're a little dirty. Um, I think you should provide you, know, you should let me do a battery terminal service, which is taking the battery terminals apart with a keep alive memory and cleaning them up and putting them back together again to make sure that you get all the corrosion out from inside because that's one of the most common things we see when we go out to a help a member who called in for a car that won't start is dirty battery terminals that um, very often the battery tests fine the whole reason the car wouldn't start was the dirty corroded battery terminals which even if we didn't see a little christmas tree growing on those terminals there's still corrosion inside those contact points and needs to be cleaned at least once a year, and that's a regular maintenance item in most owners' manuals, is battery terminal uh, cleaning and service. It, it's one of the most, in my opinion, most valuable things you can purchase at a shop um, because it's going to keep you from having your car not start. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that. When I was having the battery tested in um, this Volkswagen, and I said to the person, uh, I mentioned where I worked, and I said, oh, yeah, you know, when we test a battery, we take the battery cables off, we clean the connections and then test the battery. And he said to me, oh, our machine has an algorithm in it that makes up for the battery cables. And I smiled just like you just did. And I said, okay, if you say so, cool. Uh, cool. Yeah, so I said, I said, all right, good to know. Uh, somebody said they had a diehard battery that lasted for 10 years. Um, a kind of, kind of interesting there are a million name batteries and i'm obviously using exaggeration but there are not a lot of battery manufacturers are there no not not uh not as many as brand names as there are there's yeah. um in north american kind of space uh there's really about three basic battery manufacturers that manufacture all of the batteries for all the different brand stickers that you see placed on them um the diehard diehard for years was an, was an excellent battery with a great reputation i've honestly had several in my life um, and, and they were great batteries. And, and just like um, I think, you know, your example or my example of a car that uh, my battery lasted eight and a half, nine years. Um, yep, I, I've definitely seen examples of diehards and I've seen examples of interstates. I've seen examples of AAA batteries. I've seen examples of every brand of battery that'll last 10 years if maintained and kept in the optimal environment to, uh, to keep it that long. Because- Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, actually made by the same people. Yep. And when you, uh, like you said, when our technicians go out and open a hood sometimes, 
And we're finding this when cars are sitting more. Now we're seeing a lot more critters living under the hood than it seems like we ever have. I have talked to more people recently that have had either check engine lights come on or no starting problems and all because of mouse houses and mm -hmm. I guess in the city rat houses mm -hmm. um, and yeah. those critters building up, building up uh, um, either eating wires or just taking all the hood insulation and uh, building it all up. And I was talking to one of our folks one day and he said, yeah, I went out a car wouldn't start. He said, I kind of looked around and I noticed there was a lot of hood insulation coming out from the air intake where the air cleaner sits. And he said, I just kind of looked and he said, yeah, it was so packed full of the hood insulation that I cleaned it all up, cranked the engine over a couple more times, car started right up. And the person said, where did all that come from? And, uh, you know, he, he was a little bit of apologetic and said there was probably mice or some other rodent building a house in here. And the person was like, well, do you think it's still here? And he goes, I don't know. He said, mm. he said, uh, you know, you might want to just go and have, uh, you know, under the hood cleaned up a little bit more just in case. So we are, you know, that's something, you know, anybody who's owned an antique car that kept it in a barn always was something to worry about. It seems like that's something we're seeing more and more often now, especially where cars are being parked. Yeah, I have plenty of examples of uh, wiring repairs that I personally had to make on, on vehicles because of mice or chipmunks or squirrels or any of the yeah of um i actually station actually with uh, my dad he just got done fixing a car yesterday uh, i talked to him last night uh where it was a massive wire harness invasion and destruction uh from a mouse uh that was just uh, typical typical destruction that had to be fixed and they can it can cause hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of damage depending on how how long they're allowed to roam free under that hood and how much how much they eat yeah no we got we just got another question uh those check engine lights are a pain uh when does that come on historically and there's a, a question with almost no answer um yes you know a, a check engine light comes on anytime one of the sensors sees a reading outside of its normal parameters so it could be a voltage related issue it could be a temperature related issue an engine that doesn't get warm uh, because the thermostat's stuck open and the engine's just not getting up to operating temperature. It could be a, um, a sensor that has gotten dirty, like an auction sensor, and it just can't react quick enough. Um, but in a certain amount of time, uh, it really is more about somebody left a gas cap loose or something. And we you know, certainly see that a fair amount of times. Um, one of our coworkers had a vehicle that they had checked that had a bunch of um, it had a bunch of codes in it one was a one was a um, an evaporative emissions code uh, I, I said to him you know for for twenty dollars on this Honda record I'd go to the dealer buy a factory gas cap put it on and see what happens and he said sure enough twenty dollars to solve the problem so you know, that, that little tether on the gas cap is actually something that is 
mandated by the EPA because they know people drop gas caps. And when that little tether breaks and you're, you you know put the gas cap on the roof of your car or wherever it is and it falls down and hits the ground, yeah, all of a sudden now it's not going to seal the way it should. And that can yeah. cause the check engine light to come on. And unfortunately, like the commercial I just saw the other night, uh, driving around with things on your roof, the gas cap tends to be so light that it's not there when you get to where you're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, your, your check engine light comes on and then you, you go, I wonder what that's from. And then you realize, oh, yeah, it's because the gas cap's not there anymore. Uh, yeah, someone else I said check engine lights are a major nuisance. Well, they are. But on the other hand, they're when the engine's operating properly the check engine light shouldn't be on and it's telling you the engine's performing the way it should. So if you're driving around with the check engine light on, you should really get a check because A, it could be costing you fuel. So it's costing you more money. You're polluting the air. So it, it makes sense to make sense to just, you know, look at it and see what's going on and, and, you know, and fix it. Sometimes uh, repair is relatively straightforward. Uh, I got an email this morning from a member who, um, you can go to AAA.com slash car doctor and leave me a question. Uh, but it was a 2005 GMC pickup truck. I got a reduced power code, which is typical of a problem between the gas pedal and the throttle body. And he's like, is that an expensive repair? Well, maybe, um, you know, could it be a broken wire at the gas pedal? Yes. Could it be a bad $1,500 throttle body? Probably. Uh, and you don't know. No, um, you, you don't. And, and expensive is kind of a, a subjective term. So, so even that's a tough question to answer. What you think is expensive versus what I think is expensive might vary. Um, but one of the things that I've always said is that it, the best, in my opinion, the best way to avoid the nuisance of, of check engine lights is to start at the most logical place. And if you're not the technician doing the repair and not able to do it, give a technician at a, re at a shop the ability to do it and work with the problem uh, until it's solved um, so that you have someone who started at the beginning, understood what it looked like, um, took it through the attempted repairs and is culpable to the, to the, rep to the repair at the end um, so that you have some sort of accountability um, because one of the most challenging things that creates a lot of nuisance, I think for consumers um, as well as technicians is is chasing the same repair from shop to shop um, and, and trying to, 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 to be inconsistent with your approach to it and having multiple hands in the pot. Uh, it can get very complicated and there can be different perspectives on it. So it, it can be monetarily a nuisance, um, but if you, if you provide a qualified shop, um, like an approved order repair facility, um, like we go through to vet people and make sure they know what they're doing, um, and they have the equipment and they have the expertise and they spend the time being educated. Um, it, it, it's, it's really money that'll come back to you and savings over the long run of making a relationship with that shop and that technician that knows your car and knows the, the, the problem in the systems. No, you're right. And one of the things, you know, sometimes people want to know, well, how much is it going to cost to find out what's wrong? And unfortunately, that's an, that has to be an open-ended question because if I said to you, hey, Jay, um, I'll give you two hours to find out what's wrong. Well, you could be two hours and 10 minutes away from finding the answer. Right. So absolutely, at the end of two hours, I paid you $300 and, and I said, what was wrong with it? And your first answer might be, I don't know, which probably is 
the one the member or a customer doesn't want to hear. Better is, well, I checked this, 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 and this, and it's not that. But, yep. um, but on the other hand, I haven't got to the point where I've checked these other items yet, and I need a little bit more time. And I, that's frustrating for a customer, um, but it's something that has to be done. One of the reasons we're here today, too, is to talk about getting your car ready for winter. We talked about batteries. We talked about tires. What are some of the other things we can do to make sure that winter is going to be a winter wonderland and not a winter disaster? Well, I, I think it all still does stem from having that car checked periodically and, and checked going into winter. Um, and, and typically, I think October is what we call car care month here at AAA. Um, and, and we promote a little bit because fall is that calm, mild temper, temperature type of year, uh, time of year, rather. So it's a good time to get in and, and have the car checked out. Obviously, you want to be able to see if it snows on your car. So it's probably a good idea to have windshield wipers that work uh, and wiper blades that um, aren't leaving streaks and aren't all torn up. They're, they're a very you know, common item to replace. They're not that expensive. And I think you know, typically the intervals in our area, six months to a year for a set of wiper blades is pretty much normal to get maximum performance out of it. Um, you can go longer if you want, but you'll deal with streaks and, and the inability to clear. So wiper blades. How, how do you feel about um, sort of all weather or winter wiper blades? They used to be really ugly. They were, they, they took the metal framework, covered them with rubber. Now there's sort of the Unibeam style, but there's also sort of a um, one that the framework has a little bit more of a shell over it. Um, I happen to think they're pretty good because if you've been, if you've driven a lot in New England, you have the, um, the technique down of getting your driver's window down and smacking the windshield wiper as it comes over to the left side of the windshield to knock the ice and snow off of it. Uh, I yep. found that these winter wiper blades, um, <laughs> they might be five or $6 more per blade, but to me, they're money pretty well spent. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I've always been an advocate for winter wiper blades. Um, I have one. It's interesting. I have one automobile that I own that I'll drive in the winter, and I have another one with winter blades on it, but I have this one without. And this becomes the wipers up or wipers down debate, and it's kind of like Ford versus Chevy. Uh, we could find people who disagree with us on, on each one. I personally, with that car, because the wipers park in a way that's easy to deal with, I just lift the wipers up and leave them up and leave traditional blades on. Um, and as long as the snow doesn't pile up on my car in inches at a time while I'm driving, that's perfectly fine. The, I do like the winter wiper blades on my other car where I don't have the option to leave the wipers off easily. So they're easy to just shake off quick and the, and the, um, the boots around the frame keep the, the frame from getting iced up because the ice builds up and pulls the blade off the windshield, if not. So I, I like winter blades myself. So you're, so you're normally a wiper up guy? It depends on the car. I'm, it depends, depends on the on car. The car. Driving. It depends on convenience yeah. for me. It's usually, you know, I'm like electricity, the path of least resistance. Yeah. No, it's sometimes going into work in the morning when it's snowing out and I look at 20 cars in a row with all the wipers up. And one of the reasons that I think that people do that is they also, that way they remember to shut their wipers off. Uh, one of the problems that I always saw is people would shut the car off, the wipers would still be in the on position and they didn't clean the windshield off before they started the car, they go to start the car, that little wiper motor is trying to push off 50 pounds of snow off the car. And yep. if you're lucky, it pops a circuit breaker or blows a fuse. If you're unlucky, 
it burns out the wiper motor. And I looked up a wiper motor for a, might've been a Cadillac. It's staggering how expensive it was. I think it was yeah. about $800. Yeah, so, and, and there's actually, there's a third thing that could go wrong, which I've actually seen a few times is the wiper motor is good, it doesn't burn out, and it breaks the connection point between the wiper arm linkage and the motor itself. Right. That's usually a pretty um, tough repair because that's not something that's usually stocked in a lot of places and you have to wait a couple of days to get a new yeah. one. Um, I also, I actually, the wipers up, I find it's the easiest way cleaning your windshield with a snow broom or any type of device is harder with the wipers on, on the glass and they're in the way it's nice and easy to clean the windshield on the car. leave the wipers up on yeah. because I can make nice clean passes all the way across. Yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's again, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a Godfather uh, Cadillac versus Lincoln debate, you know, or right. you know, what's a better car. Is it, is it the God, you know, is it the Cadillac or the Lincoln? You know, what do you do? Wipers up or down the wipers yeah. down. People will tell you you're stretching the spring and you're wearing the spring out and the wiper arm the you know, so it, it is one of those kind of funny things. Um, yep. So good tires, good battery, check the fluid levels, check the belts and hoses, engine coolant. When I first started repairing cars, uh, you know, a, a lifetime ago, there was one kind of coolant. It was green. You right. mixed it 50% with water, in theory, distilled water. I remember one shop I worked at, they had a red faucet on the side of the wall that said uh, rainwater collected in a basin. It was just a faucet that connected to the public water supply, but it made the customers feel good. Um, mm. But it was, um, it, it, you know, and now the last I checked, there has to be eight different kinds of engine core. Yeah, it's, uh, I've lost count. Um, I do know that there's actually uh, a couple of, I mean, engine coolant is also like batteries in the supply and manufacturer. There, there really aren't eight different companies making engine coolant, really. It's a couple of chemical companies that are making the solution right. and get specific to the manufacturer's requirements and their certifications. Uh, but there's also a couple that are basically what they call vanilla um, that are out there as solutions that cover probably six of the eight. Um, as, as kind of an all flavor coolant. Um, the intervals have changed. I, I can remember when I, when I started learning about cars and fixing cars, most intervals were two to three years yep. um, replaced um, due to electrolysis, due to um, lack of specific ability to retain specific gravity of the coolant due to dilution. So every two to three years, you, you winterize your car. Um, and a good idea was change the coolant, put a good thermostat in it uh, and, and check the belts and hoses and replace them if you thought it was necessary. Uh, now I want to say most manufacturers are at five to six year intervals for replacement, but there is still a replacement yeah. um, recommended by most manufacturers. And that's because of um, mostly, well, not mostly, in a, in a lot of cases, electrolysis, the ability for that coolant to conduct electricity and cause corrosion within internal aluminum components. Yeah. In the and, and, not, and not even conduct electricity to create electricity. That too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have, I have literally seen a radiator that was so acidic it could light a light bulb yep you, you stick one wire of a light bulb into now again it wasn't you know it wasn't a lot of voltage but the idea that your radiator is making voltage and that's going to eat through things like the engine or at least cylinder head gaskets and things like that so making sure the engine coolant is clean making sure the heater system is operational 
because it's not just for your own comfort. It's also if the heater is not working the way it should, it's not going to defrost the window the way it should. So you want to yep. make sure that's good. Um, so again, good preventative maintenance. You know, talk to your repair technician, shop owner, look in the owner's manual, try to find out what you need to do to maintain your car to get through winter. If we kind of do all of these things, there's no reason why, even on the coldest winter day, if your car is maintained, that you should be able to go out, turn the key, start it up, and, uh, and drive away. Before I let you go, because yep. we're just about out of time, there's always the question of warming a car up. Um, in a cold day, do you warm it up or do you just get in it and drive it away? Ah, this is another place where I think, think we could, could thumb wrestle for yep. a couple. Of it's it's, uh, it's Lincoln versus Cadillac. Yeah, so I, I think it, it depends a little bit on the car um, is, is kind of where my brain goes with that. Um, and I'm still a let it warm up uh, kind of guy. I want fluid circulating all the way through the components such as the transmission. Um, before I drive off and, and try and apply hundreds of foot pounds of force to, to that car's transmission in the wheels, I want to know the fluids in everywhere it belongs, particularly yep. now in this COVID times where I may not have started one of my cars now for about three weeks or driven it anywhere. I may have run it a couple of times, but I haven't driven it anywhere. Um, and so it's much more likely that items like clutch packs and converters could be drained of fluid sitting in the sump rather than just, you know, fresh from yep. last night being where they are. So I'm a warm it up guy. Um, for, well, for I'll, I'll, I'll let you know I'm typically not a warm it up guy um, because years ago when cars didn't last very long, I met a guy who whose car lasted 400,000 miles. And I said, I said, what's your, you know, is it maintenance? What is it? And he said to me, when I get in my car, every single time I start my car, I drive it like it's a brand new car easy on the gas, easy on the brakes. I don't push it. He said, uh, you know, the idea of letting the car warm up, he said, I have a neighbor who lets their car warm up every day. And this was back when cars had carburetors and a little bit more necessary then. Um, but he's like, yeah, what did that do for the brakes? And what did that do for the rear differential? And that fluid is cold there as it, as it was, whether you warm the car up or not. So his thought was, and we see some cars, I think Subaru and maybe Mazda has a blue light that comes on that says drive easy until the light goes out. And kind mm -hmm. of for that same reason that, you know, nice and easy. But on a cold winter day, I don't want to be cold. I go out and start my car. So yeah, yeah. and let it warm up. So a little bit of it's personal. When it's really cold out, I find that with most cars today, by the time you get in the car, you adjust the seat, put your seatbelt on find your favorite radio station, adjust the heater. It's warmed up sufficiently. Now, if it's 20 below zero, is it gonna to hurt to let the car warm up? No, no. I don't think so. Yeah, no. and it's gonna to help too. Okay, so if people have questions for me or if they have a question for Jay, they can email me. But uh, the easiest way to find us is aaa.com slash car doctor. Leave me a question. I will be happy to answer it. I try to answer questions on a daily basis and uh, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Hey, Jay, thanks for taking some time out of your Saturday morning and Saturday morning. Feels like Saturday to me. Uh, on, maybe on this, on this Tuesday morning. It is Tuesday, right? It is Tuesday. Did I mention I was on vacation? Then yeah, maybe that had something to do with it. So I was going to say if it's Saturday morning, I, I'm, I'm late for a lot of things and I got some stuff I got to go do. There you go. There you go. Uh, well, here's what I will say, because I know it's Tuesday and not Saturday. 
to you and your family, have a happy and safe Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, John. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. See you.